uh, and I got I got to warn you something that that's coming up over the next few months for all of you. Uh, Christmas season comes along, and then like everybody wants something from you. We are no different. Okay, so uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. A Christmas for kids is right around the corner where where we help you know uh, kids who maybe don't have enough at Christmas time. Uh, go bags where we help you know, some foster kids just right around the corner as well. And you know, planting roots is still in the middle of that. A snoo- super snack Sunday. I always want to say snooper snack. It's like a tongue twister to me. But like super snack Sunday is right around the corner. You got all these kind of things coming up. Uh, the the rescue mission is having their turkey drive. Just a lot of things in this. So I just, just want you to be aware and not like freak out. Don't buy anybody presents. Just do this. You know. Um, but we have one other thing I want to talk to you about. We are thinking about uh, opening weekend, renting out an entire theater for the new Star Wars movie. Okay. Now, it's not Friday or Saturday, but Sunday like after church, but opening weekend, in case it's that Sunday afternoon. So like at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm still talking to them and stuff. Now, we're probably not going to do it in 3D because it wasn't shot in 3D. And it was post-converted, so we want to see it, how it was actually shot. And because and of my post-conversion, there's so much action, it's like, everything's just blurry. Right? <laughs> we went and saw The Martian, and The Martian was shot in 3D, and it looked amazing. Uh, but in 3D, but this wasn't. So we're thinking like, like 2D, and so we're trying to get to theater. The 2D showings aren't out yet. I'm talking to the manager at the theater. But uh, if we do this, there's a couple things in this. We, we want you to you know, come, so grab a ticket for yourself. But we also want you to buy an extra one for a friend. And invite somebody to come with you. So they can, if it's like, oh, I never go to church, but I'll go see Star Wars. Great. Then they can be like, those people are weird. And I like them. <laughs> right? Bring your lightsabers. Like, woo! I saw, this, I saw this YouTube video where this couple, for their first dance at a wedding, didn't dance. They did a lightsaber fight. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I wish I would have thought of that. Because, I, I, you know, I do the white boy dance. The music's fed up. I'm not. You know, it was really cool. So uh, if we did that, run out of theater, would you guys be interested? Who's interested in going? All right. A lot of you. Okay. Now, last time we did this for Lord of the Rings, like years ago, we rented out an entire theater. Uh, some of you guys didn't go to purchase t- or get tickets from us because we'll buy them. They'll be in the back and you'll pick them up. But you didn't get them to the last minute and they all ran out and then you were mad at me. Like, it's my fault. You're a slacker. It is not my fault you're a slacker, okay? If we get the tickets, you've got to get them early because they really do. But this theater is going to be a little bigger, so we'll have some more seats. So, cool. All right. Uh, and last thing I got for you is Halloween is next Saturday. Um, what we want you to do is, if you have kids, we want you to go trick-or-treating, okay? Uh, if you want to dress your kid up as Satan, I, whatever. You know, I don't know. It's, it's like, he probably has better theology than most of us because he knows who God but Anyway. <laughs> Hey, the book of James says the demons believe in God and they shudder. A lot of people don't. So, hey, anyway, I don't, I'm just digging the hole deeper. So, how about, how about if you have kids, take them out trick-or-treating, get to know your neighbors, don't drive to another neighborhood, stay in yours, get to know your neighbors. If you don't have kids, uh, or your kids are older, <laughs> maybe they're just geeks and dress like Star Wars and go out trick-or-treating anyway, I don't know. But uh, if you don't have kids, you're sitting home, stay home and hand out candy. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great way to get to know your neighbors. It's, they, they come to your house, they knock on your door, you, and, and hand out good candy, okay? Don't, don't be like, oh, I got the, the Brax family pack with uh, really hard candy that breaks people's teeth. Get something good, all right? Costco's got lots of packs. I think Walmart's got cheap packs. You just hand out candy because we want people to understand Jesus loves them, okay? And their teeth, all right? And sugar. Uh, 
So I know I know a lot of churches try and get you to go do harvest festivals where it's like, oh, don't celebrate the holiday. Guys, be right in the middle of it. Be right in the middle of it. It is a great holiday to get to know your neighbors, to learn to be missionaries in the neighborhoods that you are in. Just do it. Do it and enjoy it and, and love on your neighbors and love on your kids and get to know people. It's a great holiday that sets it up for you. I, I think that's my soapbox. All right. So welcome to Element. If you are new, bring your lightsaber, right? No. Uh, <laughs> lightsabers? Yeah, not like mine. <laughs> so anyway, welcome to Element. Uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables in the room next to the directions to pumpkin killing. And, and seriously, if you are new, you're like, pumpkin killing, I'd feel really weird showing up, I don't know any of these people. A lot of people from pumpkin killing invite their neighbors and their friends, and they don't know anybody else, you're going to fit right in. So just show up, have a lot of fun. If you think we're all a bunch of weirdos there, you can leave anyway, so, you know. Anyway. So anyway, uh, right here, Le- uh, Legend of the Fall, on the inside, you'll get some notes that go along with the message, some questions that go along with it, and some announcements on the back. You can grab one of those. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. The app is called Uversion. If you click on Live and Uversion, there's a place where it will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the questions and the verses and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. <laughs> Sorry about that sometimes, but <laughs> stay on the reading of God's Word. We'll get started. This is 2 Samuel, chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. It says, So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who speak the truth into one another's lives. Uh, that not only speaking the truth, we would do that in a, in a spirit of grace and hope and love, and we would also listen when the truth is spoken into our own lives. We ask that you would teach us to be those who walk in your ways in this world so everyone would know how good and wonderful you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in this series. It's called Legends of the Fall. During the summer, we did this really fun summer series, and everything was all bright and shiny and clouds, and the city wasn't burnt down, and it was all cool. And it's like all of these stories about the heroes you'd find in the, in the scriptures. So Coloring Book All-Stars, all happy. But now we kind of turn the corner, and we go to Legends of the Fall. It's the opposite of that. We're looking at the bad guys. And as we go through this, I really hope we're not depressing you guys too much, because I think these stories are heavy with the weight and the burden of sin in people's lives, and we're a lot like the people in the scriptures. Uh, this is like in the last few weeks and it's been really hot and my wife decides she's going to bake something in the oven or make jam and the house at like 9 o'clock at night is like 100 degrees and humid. I'm like, it's so hot in here. That, that's, how, that's how I kind of feel like these stories have been because it just gets deeper and hotter and more stifling because we look at how the sins in these people's lives are just like our own lives. A lot of times we think we're better or different than or less self-centered, but we're not. We're exactly like them, just like the people led of the fall. If a Bible open to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Today's kind of a doozy, not like last week wasn't. If you're here last week, you're like, I don't know if I can handle another week of this because last week was pretty heavy. Uh, but today, I'm going to warn you, I, I have a long way to go to get you to where we're going. And we're going to cover like six chapters in the scriptures. There's going to be lots of information. Please don't let me lose you. And hopefully you don't think I'm just rambling in the middle of this because this whole story is actually going 
somewhere in the end. If you've been keeping track the last three weeks, they all fit together. Uh, it started off with David and Bathsheba, David and his sin of adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Then we get to this guy named Amnon in 2 Samuel 13. And now we're going to talk about another guy named Absalom. And to set this up, when we get through this, you can't forget what set all of this off. What set all of it off is this thing called sin. Okay, sin is insidious. It gets deep inside of us. It makes us think that doing the wrong thing is actually the right thing. Our misplaced affections are always wanting to put ourselves in the place of God in our lives. Now, if you don't know what sin is, the book of Genesis lays it out very well. And so I'll give you the kind of the definition from the book of Genesis. We went through Genesis a few years ago. It took us a year and a half. It's a whole lot of fun for some of us. Anyway, uh, so this is a definition kind of out of the book of Genesis for what sin is. Sin is the disruption of shalom. Now, shalom is this Hebrew word for peace, but it's more than just peace. It's like rightness between God and his creation, between us and God. Everything in its right place and the right time and the right way. So it's peace with God, peace with each other, peace with creation, and peace with ourselves. And sin is the ways that we disrupt that peace that God intends for us to live within. We are people who violate his peace. The second thing that it tells you is that sin is rebellion, that we don't like the way that God set things up, so we want to twist it and change it, and we rebel against God's order of things. We rebel against the world and the way it was made and destroy it in the process. The third thing is that sin is participation in the way of death. When we steer things in the opposite direction of God, that's considered sin. And sin is most technically missing the mark. It's an archery term where you miss what you're aiming at. Now, Augustine says that all sin in our lives stems from pride, thinking that we're better than God, we can make the decisions for God about what's good for us, and that all becomes sin. Now, David and Bathsheba start a spiral downward in the rule of David as king of Israel. And I told you back in the, in the story of David and Bathsheba about Gary Richmond. Gary Richmond was this guy working in a zoo, and he had to go and try and, and get this place off this king cobra skin where it was stuck to it. So he had to go in and kind of shave it off. So five people go in there to try and help this snake. And what he says is more people are bitten trying to let go of snakes than when they grab them. My answer is just don't grab a snake. Right? You'd be, okay. uh, he says they're relatively easy to grab but hard to let go. And I said that this is true of human temptation and human sin. David is only able to repent of his adultery and the murder of Bathsheba's husband by a trusted friend that steps into his life named Nathan. And this guy speaks the truth of the gospel, that David, you are in sin, and God is calling you, and you need to surrender and repent. But you see, the consequences of David's sin and what he did still keep moving outward. In 2 Samuel 13, we got to this guy named Amnon. Amnon is believed to be David's firstborn son. And Amnon starts to have this uncontrollable lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Just like David has an uncontrollable lust for Bathsheba. It starts working its way out. Now, where David has a trusted friend who will eventually step into his life and speak the gospel, David, you're in sin, God's calling you, you've got to surrender, Amnon's friends do not do that. Amnon's friends do the exact opposite. In 2 Samuel 13, 5, Amnon's friend says, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. So he says, and so, you know, your sister's going to come in, you're going to get some food from her, and then when no one's around, you can rape her. Go, buddy. That's what his friend does. He has a horrible friend. He's like a friend that's like that frat buddy that encourages you to drink more than you should, or like an Australian buddy who encourages you to wrestle that alligator, or a redneck buddy who encourages you to do anything a redneck would do, right? That's, that's, That's that guy. And I told you last week, if you've got a lie-in scheme to get something, it is not worth it. It's not worth it. It's claiming that God is not good for what God has said our lives are to be lived like. Now, after Amnon rapes his half-sister, you read the words in 2 Samuel 13, uh, 13, 15, that he hated her more than he had loved her. So we talked about all the ways that this is what lust brings about in our lives. 
And now what we're going to get to is this guy named Absalom. And to give you a starting place for when you get to Absalom, Absalom is Tamar's full brother, the girl who was raped last week. This is her full brother. So 2 Samuel 13, we're going to start in the second half of verse 15, and it says this, And Amnon said to her, that's Tamar, after he rapes her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this, is, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Yeah, how do you feel about this guy? Okay. Okay, verse 18. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put on ashes and on her head, uh, on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart, because he's assuming that David is her father. David's the king. David's going to do something about this. So you know, just trust your dad. He'll take care of this. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now, Absalom is David's third son. It's from his fourth wife, a woman named Makar from a place called Geshur. She's a princess of the small Aramean kingdom in the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. David's marriage to her is really just to cement some political alliances in his lives, like a lot of marriages at that time were. By the time 2 Samuel 13 comes around, you will find David. He has eight wives and seven sons and a whole bunch of daughters. And I just think I cannot imagine what that house is like, right? <laughs> okay, anyway, so... You see, David is starting to act like a bunch of Middle Eastern kings, where their reputation and their power is measured in the term of the number and the beauty of their wives and the power of their sons. But David is acting against the express commands of God. Deuteronomy 17, 17, it says, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And you see David's heart turning farther and farther away. Now, back to Absalom. Absalom, at first, he's very loyal to his father. He's very loyal to the throne of Israel because, again, he expects his father, King David, to do something about this rape. But David doesn't do anything. David is David gets mad, but that's about it. He sweeps Amnon's rape under the rug, so to speak. Now, he's like a lot of parents today who will let their kids get away with everything in the world while defending their kids' sin like it isn't a big deal. Like, sometimes, you know, teachers will call parents and say, hey, I've got to have a talk with you about your kid. They're disruptive and they're out of control. And parents go in and yell at the teacher like, why are you yelling at my kid? I, don't, I think teachers have better things to do than just to pick on your kid, okay? But for some reason, a lot of parents like to get mad at the teachers when their kids act out. You know, he, David is a parent who would scream for justice if someone hurt his kid, but defend his own child if they hurt someone else. David is a hypocrite, just like a lot of us are. So when David will not act, Amnon decides, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to do something about this. And Amnon is smart, and he is patient patient. He waits two years. He plays nice with everybody. Oh, ask, oh yeah, great. Hey, I'm not great. Yeah, I'm your brother. I'm your buddy. Oh, yeah, everything is great. Acts really, really nice. And then it's sheep shearing season. And he goes to his dad and say, it's sheep shearing season. It's like Mardi Gras. Let's throw a party. And David's like, that's a good idea. And David says, well, you and your advisors come. Now, Absalom knows David and his advisors can't come to the party. And so David says, no. Then Absalom says, well, how about you send all my brothers? We'll all get together, we'll hang out, we'll bond together, it'll be great. And David's like, that's a really good idea. There's been some stuff in our family, that'd be really great. 2 Samuel 13, verse 28, Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. See, puts his plan into motion, brings it to fruition. He's smart, and he is patient. And i got to tell you, I understand and sympathize with Absalom here. I think rapists need to be stopped no matter whose kids they are. And I sit back and I read this and I think, good for him. 
I know, I know, I sound like a big meanie, but I'm just being honest, okay? I'm throwing it out there. That, that, that's kind of what I'm like. But you also have to understand that there is a place that God tells us to let justice be served in the way that he calls it to be served, and we have to trust him in that. And when justice is served, we must be a people who move on. What you see in Absalom's life is that he never moves on. He just sits in this place of hurt and will not move forward. Now, Absalom, after he kills Amnon, runs to his mother's father's kingdom. I know, mother's father's kingdom. Runs to his mother's father's kingdom in Geshur, and he stays there for three years. But David, just like he didn't do anything about Amnon, doesn't do anything about Absalom either. Doesn't say, oh, we'll bring him home and I'll kill him. Or he, just, he just, whatever, and gets a little mad and, and lets him go. So during this time, where David originally had this friend named Nathan that came to him, now David has another friend, and this friend's name is Joab. He, Joab sees David and sees David's grieving heart, not just about Amnon, about Absalom, his other son, who left. And so Joab becomes a friend who steps into David's life and speaks the gospel. And he says, you essentially, you need to bring your son home. It's destroying you. It's ripping things apart in your family. And he does this by telling a story of an old woman. You should read it at some point. I don't have time to get it for you, but it's kind of this thing. And so uh, he invites, so David invites Absalom back home by Joab telling him this story. But even like the first verse we read, Absalom comes home, but he's not allowed to come into David's presence. He has to stay outside in his own house, but can't come before David. He lives apart from his father. While Absalom is in Jerusalem, he will have three sons. They are all unnamed, and he will also have a daughter whom he names after Tamar. So you know it's still just sitting deep, deep inside of him. If you take a step back and you think about Absalom, okay, how do you think he's feeling? He's feeling betrayed. He's feeling tossed aside, unworthy. He is unloved. He comes back home, but he's still banished outside of his father's presence, and he can't see his dad. You guys ever see the, the, the movie Toy Story? Right, like, yeah, I was losing you. Toy Story, I'm totally back in. Okay, so, so Toy Story. I, I like to call this the Woody Syndrome. Okay, this is the Woody Syndrome. Uh, what happens in Toy Story is, is Bud Light, Buzz Lightyear shows up, and he's like the cool toy, and everybody loves Woody used to be the cool toy, but he's no longer. And I don't understand that, because Woody's played by Tom Hanks, and I would never cast aside Tom Hanks or Tim Allen, but whatever. Okay, So, so Woody, Woody becomes this forgotten toy. He starts feeling betrayed and tossed aside and unworthy and unloved, and so what does he do? Throughout the entire movie, he lashes out. He lashes out at everybody around him. He does stupid things. This, this actually keeps going all the way into Toy Story 2. See, cartoons can tell you the story of the Bible. Just right there. See, like Absalom, but Toy Story, no, I got that. I, I can follow this. So Absalom has no friends that speak, speak into his life the truth of the gospel. And so what he does is he seethes inside with this anger and hostility because he feels betrayed and tossed aside. He starts to think of all the ways that he'd be a better king than his father. And what Absalom has going for him is a couple things. Absalom is patient, he is smart, and he's really good looking. It's amazing what looks will do for you in our world. If you are really good looking, you get away with tons of stuff. I mean, seriously, look at some of the dumb things that Hollywood actors and actresses say, and everybody's like, eh, okay, they're hot. You know, it's like, it's like everybody just overlooks all the crazy things they say. I think sometimes the better looking you are, the less brains you get for some reason. I don't know why. And I don't have that problem, because I don't have either. I'm not good looking or smart, so I don't know how it happened with me. But Absalom's got both. Uh, this is how you see it. 2 Samuel 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there is no blemish in him. That is one good looking dude. He also has like this, this amazing hair. It's like dark and thick and all the girls just love it. Like, oh, I love Absalom and his hair. Okay. Also, the men loved Absalom, chapter 15, verse 6. We are told he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Why? Because he acted like he cared for them. He was smart. He knew how to interact with people. 
Again, Absalom has these huge daddy issues, but he's starting to put this plan into motion in his life of what he's going to do. And you see him now start to move as he goes further and further off the rails. He knows Joab is the one who got David to let him come back to Jerusalem. So he starts trying to get a hold of Joab. I need you to let me into my dad's presence. I need you to let me into my dad's presence. And Joab ignores him. So what Absalom does is he has a friend who has a field next to Joab, so he sends his friend over to set all of Joab's fields on fire. Oh, what a great kid. So Joab starts to see the, you know, the kind of things who Absalom is, and he starts to regret his decision for bringing him back, but he still goes to David, and he says, David, you know, just see your son. Maybe this will solve some of the craziness in him. Just see him. And so David finally relents. He relents, and he meets with Absalom. He kisses him. He loves him. It's like a reunion. But for Absalom, this is exactly what he wanted, because it's the start of a coup, and he starts to get himself back into power. Absalom now wants not just justice. What he wants is revenge. He wants his father gone and someone to rule justly, which in his mind means him. He thinks David's sin has made David unworthy to rule the kingdom of Israel. But he also doesn't understand that his own hard heart and his anger and revenge have made him unfit for rule as well. Just like revenge always does, it skews our minds to make us think that things that we do aren't as bad as they actually are. I've said this to you lots of times, revenge is always tempting, because revenge is intoxicating. It feels good to let people know that nobody can push you around. And when people get theirs, yeah, that's just exactly what they needed. You hurt me, now here's what's coming. And I tell you that revenge always escalates. It never stops. It always wants more. It's like the, the study they did where you go in and, they, and you, you were to grab somebody else's hands and squeeze them, and then you're supposed to squeeze back with the same amount of pressure they gave you. 100% of the time, the people that squeezed back squeezed harder than the people that squeezed them. And what that tells you is that we always escalate. We want people to hurt more than we hurt so we can feel better. This goes like the story of Romeo and Juliet. you got those two families, the Montagues and the Capulets. It's this rivalry that ends with the death of those two lovers. The explanation that Shakespeare gives you of how this whole thing started is somewhere, some point, long ago, somebody said an airy word to another. Someone just got offended. We are so fast to get offended today. And we get mad and things just started going further, further and further, further and ends up with these two people dying. Absalom's just like that. And so he puts his plan into motion in 2 Samuel 15. People start coming to Jerusalem for David to settle some disputes and make judgments. And so what Absalom does is he gets himself a chariot and 50 men to run beside it, just like a king. I'm in the king's graces, I have power, this is who I am. And he would go and sit at the gate of Jerusalem, and he would intercept all of these visitors coming inside. 2 Samuel 15, verse 2. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? Don't go inside, just talk to me. From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. David doesn't care. He sits in his palace all day. Have you seen his family? It's a mess. I can tell you firsthand. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Now, Absalom does this for four years. Four years. Do you think David hears about it? Of course David hears about it. Right? What does David do? Nothing. Nothing. It continues just to go on and on. Uh, eventually, one day, Absalom's got all of his plans in motion, and they're all set. And Absalom goes to David and says, I made a vow to the Lord. I need to go worship God at Hebron. And so David says, well, if you made a vow to the Lord, you better go worship at Hebron. So he goes. And as Absalom goes, he sends messages to all the tribes of Israel and says, now's the time. We're going to overthrow David. Rise up. And in 2 Samuel 15, verse 10, they all start chanting, Absalom is king at Hebron. 
So many people follow Absalom that David has to flee from the city of Jerusalem. And what's really interesting is on his way out of the city, he walks up this place called the Mount of Olives. It seems like every time this comes up in the scriptures, you see people's hearts being broken. Uh, This is where Jesus, where he was weeping before the Father for the crucifixion. David walks to the Mount of Olives, and his heart becomes broken. I think he starts to see all the places in his life that has messed up his family, and messed up his rule, and messed up his kingdom, and all of this stuff. And he starts to pray, starts to seek forgiveness and grace. He turns and he sees the priests of God starting to carry the Ark of God's Covenant out of the temple and out of the city to follow David. And David stops him. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 25, he turns around and he says, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I find no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And so David says, I am just going to rest in God's hands now. I've totally tried to mess things up. I'm trying to hold them on by myself, and I'm going to trust him. And then David runs for his life. Now, one of David's top advisors, his name is Ahithophel. Do not name your kids that. It is like near impossible to say. I've been practicing it like all week, so I don't mess it up. Ahithophel, that's his name. See? You try it, right? Ahithophel goes with Absalom over to his side, which is a huge blow to David. Ahithophel is like a brilliant strategist. He is great in war, and if you want to win a battle, that's the guy you want on your side. And so Absalom goes to him, and he says, okay, so what should I do? And Ahithophel says to him in 2 Samuel 16, 21, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So what they do is they put a tent on top of the palace and they bring all these concubines out and Absalom has sex with them so everybody can see. Now, these concubines are people David most likely didn't even have sex with. Okay? But Absalom does. And it's, and it's probably forced sex. What's another word for forced sex? Rape. How's this whole thing start? Rape. His revenge escalates to the point where he does the thing that was done to his sister and does not even realize it. And he keeps moving forward, thinking what he is doing is okay, and it is not. Why? Absalom has nobody in his life who will step into it and speak the truth of the gospel. You are going off the rails. You are in sin. You are messed up. Ahithophel was not that guy. Ahithophel is the guy, if you, if you want to win at, at all costs, he's the guy that you went to. I mean, 2 Samuel 16 will tell you that Absalom and David both listened to him in, in all these areas of war, like the voice of God, it says. Now, Ahithophel, he is incredibly wise, as I said, when it comes to battle. But, and, and as long as Ahithophel was in Absalom's court, David has no hope of winning. And so what David does is he goes to his friend. His friend's name is Hushai. And David goes to his friend and he says, you know what, Hushai, you, I need you to go back. And I need you to ingratiate yourself to Absalom and get into his court. And everything that Ahithophel says, I need you to try and get you know, Absalom to do the exact opposite. Please. And Hushai is a friend that he loves David. He says, okay, I'll do it. He goes back, he ingratiates himself, and he becomes one of Absalom's advisors. So go to 2 Samuel 17 if you've got a Bible. Ahithophel at this point is trying to win, stop further bloodshed, and this is what he says. 2 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. 
And so he says, you know what, if I kill just David, these people will come back. And that's his plan. Keep the country unified. This is how you win. This is how you consolidate and keep power. So Absalom has to make a choice. Because eventually he has to capture and kill David if his throne is ever going to be secure. The question is when. Ethelfel says, go while he's in grief, while he is on the run, when he's off balance. Get him before he can get strategies together and consolidate his position. If you get him now, the kingdom is yours. Capture and kill him. Now, Hushai, who is the great friend of David, is also brilliant in his own right. And he goes, wait, wait, because he watches and he knows who Absalom is. He knows what Absalom's heart is like. And so what he will do is he will appeal to Absalom's fear and Absalom's vanity. To his fear, he will say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is David. You know who David is? Okay, that's your dad. I know he whooped you when you were a kid, but he, that, that is like your dad. And when Saul went after him, he went out in the wilderness. He still got his mighty men with him. Saul can capture him. He knows that place better than anybody else. He is battle-hardened. And if you go out there and do what Saul couldn't do, you might either get killed or if you don't catch him, you'll come back in disgrace and all of your poll numbers will plummet. You don't really want that, do you? And then he appears, appeals to his vanity. And he says, but you know what? You are popular and people really do like you. Everybody loves you right now. If you just sit tight, people do not like living in the woods eating bugs. Okay? So they're going to want to leave David eventually and they'll come back to you and then David will be left alone and eventually then you can go and, and get him. You can take him. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? Because he appealed to Absalom's vanity and fear. You know, Absalom didn't have anybody in his life to go, Do you know what you're listening to right now? You're listening to vanity and fear. You're not listening to anything that's really, really wise. And so what Absalom says, Oh, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. There's no reason to take the risk. If he listened to Ahithophel, he would have won. He would have won, and Ahithophel knew it. And as soon as Absalom didn't go after David, he knew Absalom's done. You read this in 2 Samuel 17, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Why? Because he knows it's over. It is done. And when David comes back in the city, David's going to hang him anyway. Better get my house in order first and figure it out. That's, That's what he thinks. Ahithophel's like, you can keep disaster away by not listening to wisdom for a little bit, but eventually disaster's going to hit. The text of 2 Samuel is sure to always come back to show you that even though David makes his mistakes, even though David keeps messing up a whole lot of things, he still loved God and sought God and the people around him who kept speaking the truth into his life, even when at times he didn't listen. Absalom didn't. I think Ahithophel saw that and knew that Absalom was doomed. Absalom had no one in his life to step in and speak the gospel and say, you're in sin. And God is calling you. You need to surrender your life. Absalom, because he rejected God, did not know who he really was. He has a combination of where he felt inferior because he had this horrible relationship with his dad, but he also felt superior to everybody because he thought he knew better than everyone. One writer says this, He had too little a view of his strength, and he had too great a view of his glory. He didn't have an accurate view of who he was. And because he didn't have an accurate view of who he was, he didn't know how to choose his counselors correctly. He surrounds himself with those who told him what he wanted to hear and not those who would tell him the truth about himself personally. Now, eventually, Absalom does go out to fight David, but it's too late. Their armies meet in the force of what a place called Ephraim. And while the battle's going, Absalom's riding around with his hair out. Woo, my great hair! And he gets caught in a tree. Pulls him right out of the saddle. He's just hanging there. It's kind of funny in the scriptures, okay? That's... It's meant to show, you know, we all think we're cool with our awesome hairdos, and God's like, <laughs> okay. 
So you get, so you get, st- you get stuck, in, stuck in this tree. 2 Samuel 18, verse 10, And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Oak, Joab said to the man, What? You saw him. Why then did you not strike him to the ground? He doesn't strike him to the ground because David said, Don't kill Absalom. He's my son. I know he's a knucklehead, but don't do anything, anything to hurt him. Joab says, I'd have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Like, a belt? Why didn't you say so? A belt? Oh my goodness. No, the soldier says, David said not to, so I didn't. But Joab knows firsthand the kind of person that Absalom is. They all know at this point the kind of person that Absalom is. And he knows what it's going to do to the country if he lives. So he goes out, Second Samuel 18, verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. He took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armors bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Like a pinata, okay? And the kind of hanging there. Now, David is going to, I know, I got no compassion, whatever. So, David is now, he starts to mourn Absalom, okay? And it mourns so much that it starts to discourage his soldiers who had just fought for him and died for him and bled for him. He goes into his tent and he just sits there on the inside and doesn't go out and talk to him. And you know what happens? Joab goes in to talk to David. In chapter 19, Joab essentially says, David, you are an ungrateful idiot. Would you rather all of Israel died? Would you rather all of Israel had to live under the rule of that brat? These people came out for you, and they bled for you, and, they, and a lot of them died for you, and they love you, and more important than that, they love God, and they believe that God has put you where you are for a reason. He says, so go out there, and you be the king that God intended for you to be. And you know what David does? He does it. He does it. He goes back out, he returns to Jerusalem, he reunifies his country, he offers pardons for a lot of the people who are in rebellion. I think he would have even pardoned Ahithophel if he would have waited and seen David's heart change after God got a hold of him. He offers people forgiveness and grace. And I know we were talking about Absalom, but David's a survivor, so we've got to talk about David. Why does David do this? Because he understands God's grace. But how? Because he had trusted friends that would step into his life and speak the truth of the gospel. Guys, friends in our lives are meant to be people who say hard words to us because those hard words from friends can be trusted because they love us. Do you have someone in your life who has told you the truth that maybe you refused to listen to it because it was too hard to hear? Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Friends can wound you with their words, but you can trust those wounds because they love you. But profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Enemies are the people when you put any stupid thing on Facebook, they're like, 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 way to go, yeah, oh, uh." friends are like, what in the world are you posting on social media? You're a dummy. What is going on with it? That's what friends do. I mean, do you understand what a great privilege it is that God puts us in each other's lives to be in a relationship with each other? And when you speak the truth, it's not about judgment for people's sins. What it is, is about having the guts to speak truth into their lives so they grow out of the place of idiocy where they are. You know, Joab was David's friend when David was acting wise and when David was acting foolish. He didn't stop being David's friend because David was acting like a knucklehead. He still loved him in the midst of that. He loved David in both places. And I will tell you, if you have ever tried to confront somebody in your life, it doesn't go well. But we all need it. We need people to step into our lives and speak the truth of the gospel and not let us get away with our idiocy. We need trusted friends who do that, who say you are in sin. God is calling. Surrender your life. It's the only way you will understand who you were ever meant to be. See, let me see if your friends have ever been honest with you, okay? Has anyone ever told you that you are, that you are selfish, that you are sinful, and you worship only yourself? 
I just did. You're welcome. Okay? It shouldn't be just me, though. It shouldn't be just me from up here, like, oh, that Aaron, he's always... I, I say it because, because it's like someone said, hard words produce soft people, and soft words produce hard people. And guys, we want to be a soft people when God's Spirit starts talking to us. And so a lot of times, hard words need to be said. You know, when someone gets in your face, what is your first reaction? A lot of times, it's, get out of my face. How dare you say this to me? What's your problem? You know what our first reaction really should be? It should be, is there any truth in this? Is there any truth in what they're saying? Now, sometimes there may not be any truth in it, okay? There there may not be, but sometimes there is as well. As you and I, we are horribly self-centered and we are incredibly lost. We are just like Absalom. We are just like him. We all think that we could do it better than God. We all think we could do it our own way. We have all gone our own way. But the beauty of the scriptures is it shows you what God continues to do. Just like David goes back into Jerusalem and he pardons his enemies, the beauty of the scriptures is that God sends Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and to pardon us. And what the beauty in that is, is we can actually now face our sin. We can face the things that we have done and people call us out on those things. We can face it because Jesus is the one who has already paid for it. Jesus is the one who has redeemed us. He has called us into relationship with him so we can face those things. We have relationship with God because of Jesus. And the truth is our lives are shot without him. God is redeeming. God is loving. God is calling us home. He speaks the truth. And we must be a people who listen and live in that truth. I mean, David by the grace of God, has multiple trusted friends who step into his life and they shared the gospel. Absalom did not, and their lives turned out completely differently. I mean, they both started making a whole lot of selfish decisions. But David turns out differently because he had friends who were honest enough to tell him the truth. Now, granted, David should have been the one who was doing this with his sons. He should have stepped into his sons' lives and said, you know what, the gospel is this, you guys need to surrender, Jesus is good, and you are living like a knucklehead. But he doesn't do it, it's another failure on his part. But his friends still step in. I mean, in the scriptures, you see that God has revealed to us our nature, but God also redeems us. He reveals us, you know, just exactly who we are, but still calls us into relationship with him. I mean, salvation is more than just being saved. Salvation is also to understand that we live in the gospel every day of our lives, that we are saved to step into one another's lives and love one another. I mean, as we, I mean we are to be a people who understand that salvation means also living out the truth of the gospel in each other's lives. And so we should learn to be a people who encourage those around us to speak the truth. Speak the truth to me. I need to hear it, no matter how extreme sometimes it could be. Because we know that in the hardness of our hearts and the hardness of our lives, that Jesus is the one who has redeemed us from ourselves and our broken way of life. Jesus gives us himself. This is the beauty of the gospel. If you take all the scriptures and you kind of sum them up, they continually just keep showing us our lives. I mean, Absalom's life is so like our life. We have, we have these things in our life that has hurt us, and so we react and respond out of that because we have all this, this pain here. But on the other side, we keep acting like we're okay and we know better than anybody else. Not, when we know how broken we really are, we just push it away. And, that's Absalom. Keep thinking that we know how to do it better. Oh, you know, 10 years ago, somebody said this to me, and I'm so mad, I'm never going to restore a relationship with that person again because they're such a jerk. And we hold on to this thing. It just kind of escalates. And God calls us to be a people who understand his redemption and grace. And that we step in and we restore relationships. Why do we restore relationships? Because he first restored relationships with us. And he calls us to be imitators of him. I mean, this is is the beauty of when we talk about communion. 
Pinion is where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It represents this blood that was shed for you and me because of our many sins. And he washes them away. And he remakes us into new people. And as this people, we are also called to step into one another's lives and speak the truth of the gospel. Sometimes they're hard words, sometimes they're fun words. I mean, it's like, like Joab. When David's acting wise, they probably laughed a lot and loved each other. But when David was acting foolish, Joab still steps into his life and speaks the truth. Those are the kind of people we need to be with one another. That's how God intends for us to live in community with one another. That's how we live in community centered around the gospel with one another. Saying true words that sometimes are really, really hard. The band's going to come up. Sorry, they're, they're hugging each other in the back. <laughs> And as, as they come up, sharing the gospel. Uh, as as, as they come up, we might do a communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you're in a place in your life today, and you know maybe you had some hurt that was done to you, and you don't know how to get past that hurt or what to do with it. And it's kind of it's kind of making you who you are today. It's kind of I don't know, maybe making you bitter and resentful and angry, and you just can't get past it. They would love to pray with you about that. Because God is calling us to transcend and go past those things. To understand that the gospel brings freedom. It's not bondage we're intended to live in, but freedom and hope in the truth of who Jesus is. And they'd love to pray with you about that. Now, there's offering boxes inside of one in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship. We don't pass the pledge response to what he has done. There's some donuts in, in the back. I think there's like a million donuts in the back, actually. So grab something to eat, and in doing so, meet some other people, and maybe start to develop some friendships where you can speak the gospel into somebody else's life, and they can, in turn, speak it into yours. So we grow into the people that God intends for us to be. God, guys, I'll tell you, uh, the salvation and grace that Jesus gives to us, it, it's really simple. It really is. It's, it's simple, and it's wonderful, and it's freeing. But as we start to live that out in each other's lives, we are the ones who make it hard. We make it really hard to do it in each other's lives because we want to be offended so easily in our culture today. And I said, and think of, I think instead of being so offended so easily, maybe what we should do is understand that if people love Jesus, they're going to love us. And when they speak hard words, we trust those hard words. And we begin to live and walk in actual true community with one another, all based in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, today I ask that you would teach us what it means to be those who live and walk in the grace and the truth of your gospel. To understand that we are a people that you have spoken the truth to about ourselves and who we are. That we are a people who are lost and alone many times. A people who don't see what you have called us to as grace and hope but we see it as more and more of a burden and I ask that we begin to understand how to live lives that are centered completely and solely upon you and the grace that you extend and give that our hearts will be broken in many ways that our hearts will be broken in so many ways that we understand your repair and your restoration. And that we would then step into each other's lives with the strength that you provide, speaking truth even when it's hard. 
that we would honor you in how you call us to live and more importantly, how you call us to love. And that we would truly be a reflection of you to this world. Not just your children, but also understand that we are ambassadors. Showing the truth and the goodness and the hope and the grace of our good God who has come to rescue you and redeem us. Give us the strength and the conviction to live in the hope and the truth that you provide. Amen.